Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Welcome, everyone, to another weekly debrief. Each week, Brian and I take on a case from our backlog of must-see films that either one of us or both of us have yet to see. And our debrief will provide not only our opinion of the film, but will also discuss its significance and influence in both the film industry and society as a whole. Along the way, we'll also provide other fun trivia and insights on the film. So, Brian, what was our mission this week? Our mission this week, you know, we like to, we like to be trendy. We like to be, you know, somewhat in the conversation, even if we weren't invited. And recently, the conversation has been about musicals and how musicals kind of been sneaking up on people. <laughs> if you, I don't know, you noticed this, Caitlin, actually, you brought it to my attention how there's been movies coming out recently and their trailers have been given no indication that it's a musical. And you go into the theater, you sit down, next thing you know, they gotcha. Doors lock, speakers are blasting, and it's a musical. Yeah, I think the two big ones we saw this from were Wonka and Mean Girls. Mean Girls, which is going to be coming out when again? It's going to be coming out, well, it will have been already out after okay. the, the, uh, when this has been published. But for us recording on the 10th, it'll be out the 12th. And they say a lot of that's because people don't really like musicals, or at least that's the perspective that studio executives are getting so they figure that the way to get people in seats is to, to trick them into surprise musical i don't know if it's so much that people don't like musicals as it is people have a prejudice to musicals okay yeah like they i feel like when you hear oh man we're gonna watch a musical like it's gonna be i feel like people automatically think about something like singing in the rain uh umbrellas of the under the place i was gonna say chernobyl again but not that <laughs> You've not even seen that one. I've not seen that one, but like th even that one comes to my head. And you know, when people think of musicals, Singing in the Rain, there's a lot of people who know that movie and can reference that movie, but have not seen that movie. Yeah. But I, I, I like musicals, and but I do sometimes, I'm like, oh man, a musical? And then I sit down and watch it, I'm like, okay, no, this, you know, it works. I'm having fun with it. So I think it's not so bad. I, there's another kind of subversion that I don't like, which is done with horror movies. When they make a thriller trailer and they try to make it like real horror -y. they put a lot of jump scares in the trailer and then you go see the movie and it's not a horror movie at all. Uh, the biggest yeah. one was It Comes at Night, which was released a couple years ago with Joel Egerton acting mm -hmm. in it. I was like, man, there was nothing scary about this film. And you see like you see a lot of low ratings when they do that to to movies because people go in there like, oh, man, I'm expecting a horror movie. You know horror fans, they're going to be quick to get on the internet. It's not like they got another horror film to watch. I think you get your, I guess, the idea is to get the money back and you'll get butts and seats by, and you'll get the money back by selling theater tickets, but your ratings aren't going to be as high. Your critics' aren't scores aren't going to be really good. Your audience scores aren't going to be as good. Yeah, I well, no, because the, the ones out right now, so you have Wonka, which is receiving good reviews, and people are still going to the theater and checking it out. So it looks like the word of mouth has been really good. And also you have, I've been hearing good things about Color Purple, and I feel like not a lot of people know that that's a musical. But I oh, feel like I that hasn't that been marketed. I was marketed as a musical. Like, was it? I, f I don't even know if I saw the trailer, to be honest. I don't remember, to be honest. But that's another musical out there. That one may not be trying to subvert people's uh, expectations, but that is another musical that is out there. And yeah. it's interesting. Oh, good. That's true. I, I do think the word of mouth can definitely 
uh, help a lot if it's a good film. But if you're, you know, if you're not feeling confident in your film and you do this, it's not going to do so well. Right. And these have been some unusual musicals. Again, kind of Singing in the Rain is, you know, has that, has kind of the plot and themes that you see usually in a musical. But these are a bit different. You have Mean Girls being a musical set in a high school story. And you have Wonka. What? A high school musical story? Yeah, okay, I, I guess, mean, I feel like I just said that high school musical. <laughs> high school musical. Yeah, so it's not like the only musical set in high school. Okay, now, okay, but it's one of the few remakes of a straight movie that it be, that has been a musical. It's a music. It's a musical remake of a, mo- a movie that was not a musical. Yeah, and I'm glad done. you brought that. Like, Legally Blonde was also like that, but I'm glad you're bringing that up because that's also our mission this week, right? Yes, yes, I'm getting there. I'm taking the far okay. route. I'm okay. getting there because we got like multiple like reasons that this movie is timely. Uh, Wonka is is a musical about organized crime. I know you haven't <laughs> seen it yet, Caitlin. I, I texted you the other uh, the other day. I think it was yesterday, and I said, "Hey." Wonka is a film about organized crime, and I'll talk that talk more about that in our water cooler episode for the year review. And then Color Purple, um, I can see you doing a musical of it, but there's some things that you do wonder: how do you sing about that and not have yeah. it be super depressing? Yeah, I'm I'm very curious how the Color Purple musical works. I mean, obviously, not all musicals are joyful. There's a lot of musicals that are very sad, but it's just the subject matter of a color purple it's very uh it's very traumatic (laughs) so it's it'll be interesting to see how that goes now as for wonka though i'm not gonna lie as soon as i was watching the trailer and i heard the words chocolate cartel i turned it off which is funny when we had that conversation you're like i heard chocolate cartel i turned it off and i said i heard chocolate cartel and i was sold (laughs) that 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 idea was amazing and they go all out with it uh, but again, we'll talk. That's definitely getting brought up during that Brass Magnifier Awards. Now, this film is another musical that you don't usually see a musical of, and that is a horror concept, which we have done in the past with Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Though I think I don't know. I guess they both have the same amount of horror in it. I, I think this one is more horrific than Rocky Horror, honestly. Um, the body count is more. I mean, uh, yeah, but when you talk about the I'd body count with Rocky that. Horror Picture Show, it's a different body count than than this film. Dead body <laughs> yeah, count definitely. is higher in, <laughs> in this film. True, I guess. I wouldn't say it's the more horrific, but they're both horror comedies. They're not like straight horror musicals. Like, I mean, Sweetie Todd is a horror comedy too, but it's that definitely leans more into horror. Uh, there's Jekyll and Hyde. There's Phantom of the Opera, which has horror elements. Uh, darker musicals definitely do exist, and they're ones that I tend to lean more towards in liking than just straight musicals. But I, I enjoy musicals. Yeah, and I know somebody right now is like, God, will he just say the title? Like, I know what the title is because it's, <laughs> it's on the episode that I clicked. But yes, we are watching The Little Shop of Horrors, if you have not guessed already, or, you know, read the title of the episode that you had played. Yeah, I took the long route here. We got it. You did. We got it. it. Guys, it was either I was going to take the long route or I was going to sing. So, uh. Caitlin, this is a movie. Uh, this is another one in which your lineage, as we said in the last episode, had failed you. 
Sorry, I just was... <laughs> Every time you say that, I'm like, my lineage. <laughs> like, my mind goes to heritage, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> In some ways. But yeah, you, you've never seen this film, right? No, have you? Yeah, I have. Of course. Oh, okay. So I didn't realize that you had seen this before. So that's yes. why you're leading this episode. <laughs> that's why I'm leading this episode, and that's why I'm giving you a hard time right now. And that's why, if everybody direct their attention to the big board, I'm giving my mom another cool point. <laughs> I know this movie and Caitlin does not. Yeah, this is a film that she introduced me to. I think we had saw a parody while watching Family Guy. Okay. And I was laughing because it was like it was it was still funny, even not knowing the joke. But my mom asked me, she's like, Do you know where that's from? And I said, No, I don't know, I just find it funny because it's just ridiculous. And she told me it was a little shop of horrors, and we watched that that movie together. And yeah, it's, it's a movie that she enjoys as well. And I've seen okay. it, I think, I've seen it again afterwards. Uh, this is a movie, you know, not saying too much about my opinion, but it is something that I would like to see as a stage play off-Broadway. Now, I wish I had seen this earlier because I was on an episode of Caster Skill playing a trivia game, and I got a trivia question for this, and I obviously didn't get it right because I haven't seen the movie. And uh, Rick, Caster's Guild member, uh, guild leader Rick, he was like, I thought you would have seen this. I was like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's when you should have phoned a friend. That's when you should have called me. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely avoided watching it because I didn't think it was going to be something that I was going to enjoy. Um, I had, I wouldn't say I knew what the plot was, but I kind of expected it to be a certain way um so i guess we'll find out if it was true to my expectations yeah even if my mom didn't tell me about this film i would have probably still ended up watching it uh it's just kind of i don't know like i said before during this podcast sometimes certain concepts just they just drag me in with that alone like you don't even have to sell me on the plot just tell me hey this is about a guy finds a giant alien plant who demands flesh to continue growing both in size and his assistants or his familiars um, fame. Much like the, there's another horror musical, uh, The Lore, which I'm sure you haven't seen, right? That's the mermaid one? Yes, it is a, oh, let me find the language real quick. I did not realize like that was a musical. Oh, hmm. I'm pretty sure I can check our messages and I'm sure I've informed you. Because anytime I mention this movie, I love to say, yeah, it's a um it's a pole it's a Polish musical of killer mermaids. Oh, I mean, so this has been on my watch list for a while because I know that there's a criterion version. Um I maybe I just didn't make the connection between the two. Yeah, it's it's quite the film. It's it's a bit odd. It's about what you expect in a Polish musical about killer mermaids. Okay. Now, this film, however, uh, and also to let you guys know which ones we watched and be given our opinions of today, I'll be giving my opinion on both cuts, the director's and the theatrical. Caitlin, you said you watched the director's cut today? I watched the director's cut, but I did check out the ending on the theatrical version. Okay, cool. So we'll have both opinions here because those are two very totally different cuts. Now, for the first portion of our podcast, you know, when we finally get to it, is going to be spoiler free. So do not worry if you have not seen this film. If you're like Caitlin and you know, you just didn't have that per that right person behind you to make you watch this film, don't worry. We're not gonna go ahead and spoil anything. 
Uh, when we do get to the portion where it's classified and we are going to be putting out some spoilers, we will make sure to give you guys a warning. Now, critics, critics uh, looked at this pretty favorably. This has a 7.1 on IMDb. This has a 91% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes with a 79% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. This also was nominated for two Oscars, Best Visual Effects and Best Original Song, which looking at this film, you can you can like see just within the trailer. What did you find, Caitlin? So this film had a budget of $25 million and grossed $39 million at the box office, but it gained more of a following after it was released to home video in 1987 and has since become a cult classic. It was also nominated for two Golden Globes for Best Original Score for a Motion Picture and Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. It did win a Saturn Award for Best Music by composer Alan Menken, uh, who we'll talk a little bit more about later because he's kind of a big composer in Disney. And then also in 2012, it won a Saturn Award for Best DVD or Blu-ray Special Edition release, which I believe that is the director's cut that was released in 2012. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about Minkman later, him and, and Ashman. Who? Minkman? Minkman? God dang, I mixed up the two names. Yeah, wait, <laughs> Ma- what is his name again? Ma- Alan Menken. Menken, Menken, Menken and Ashman. Menken. Menken. Oh my God. Alan and Howard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this film centers on a character named Seymour, who, he's a he's a meek little guy. He's He's timid and... Of course, you know what that means. He has some love interest that's just out of his reach. But with the help of uh, his little plant buddy, he may be able to reach that fame and that level of self-esteem that he can win the hand of what he believes to be his true love. The only problem is is that this plant requires a little bit more than just water and sunlight, which I know a lot of people are like, dude, I can't even get that right. Like, you just got plants dying from you know, left to right. This one requires blood and eventually some flesh to grow. Now, how many sacrifices is Seymour willing to make? Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and talk about it. Caitlin, what did you think of this film? So I think this is a film that I almost think I would have preferred it as a stage rendition. I think I would have almost liked it better if I had seen it on stage rather than as a film. And that's because I think it has some pacing issues, especially in the beginning. Uh, A lot of the the human stories I don't particularly enjoy. The love story I wasn't really feeling and the main character I wasn't really feeling either. However, there were some things I just really did enjoy. And the main thing I enjoyed was Audrey 2, which is our alien plant. I think that Audrey 2 was incredibly well done. And I was surprised when I, before I watched this, I saw that it was done by Frank Oz. So that alone gave me really high expectations for this film and how that puppetry was going to go. So I'm glad that he did a really good job with that. And the puppetry team did a good job with that. And we'll, of course, talk a little bit more about the logistics of that in significance. But I really appreciated that. And I appreciated Steve Martin and even the guest appearance by uh, Bill Murray in this film. Because I think that they, you know, you can tell they are experienced comedic actors. And I think the comedy came through with that. Like I said, it was kind of a, the human story here that I just wasn't really feeling. The love story, the uh, rise to fame from our main character. Those are the things I just wasn't really feeling. And I feel like kind of bogged down the pacing a little bit. And as for the music, I think that there's a couple songs that... 
stood out a, a bit, but I think largely a lot of the music in this who was pretty unmemorable to me. I will agree. I think I would have liked this more as a stage play. It does have that that feeling to it. And, you know, watching a stage play, I haven't seen too many, but they do have like a, I don't know, they give off a certain atmosphere to it. Like, I don't know, you get a little extra something from it that you don't get in film. However, still seeing this as a movie, I I enjoy it. I enjoyed it from the first time that I watched it, and I enjoyed it today as I was watching it. Yeah, I don't think the characters really have that much uh, going for them. I think it's a, it's a rather simple story, and I think they're rather simple characters. Uh, that didn't bother me so much, especially in an hour 30 musical. I got what I needed from the characters to keep moving along with this plot and, and keep enjoying it. I didn't have that issue with the pacing. I was, you know, I was looking at this the, the whole time. They had my attention. The songs, I think the songs are memorable. Uh, I think, yeah, musical, not everyone is going to be memorable, but I do think that there are some that in here that get stuck in your head, like the Mean Green Monster or the Mean Green Mother from Outer Space and uh, what's the other one that I was singing in my head? Just the, the opening, Little Shop of Horror. Uh, I think Steve Martin puts on a good performance with his musical number as well, The Dentist. Uh, I think his performance is just good. I think while the characters don't have much depth to them, the actors and actresses, they're still giving a lot to their performance to enjoy. I feel like suddenly Seymour was the musical standout for me. I did like the the Mean Green Mother when I was listening to it, but I'm having a hard time recalling what it actually sounded like now. Um, Don't ask me to I sing I did. <laughs> Go ahead. Sing it for us. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, I was actually really impressed by Audrey's song, Somewhere That's Green, uh, by Ellen Green. Perfect name for that song. Audrey uh, 1 or 2? Audrey 1. Okay. Audrey Just making sure our audience is tracking. Yeah. And for Audrey 1, she was a character that her voice really annoyed me. Uh, her, like, her talking voice. But I had to hand it to her because she brought in that voice to the song. And you can tell that she was a very skillful singer. That song, Over the Green, I i don't know if you... I'm not surprised that you like that song. And I'm not sure if in your research you found out. Yeah, I realized yeah. why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah, say it's my favorite song. My favorite song is certainly Seymour. I think that's the most memorable one to me. Yes. I do... Her voice is yeah. supper time. I think it's called the supper time kind of yeah, supper time. Feed me a lot Seymour. of a like mm-hmm, a lot of a like uh, like music that was kind of playing in the background where there's not a lot of vocals. Maybe you'll have the chorus in there doing some some riffs. But I thought that was really good. Even better than like the actual songs themselves. I think supper is the one that blended the horror and the musical the best. Yes. Like I actually felt yeah. suspense in that one. Yeah. But I think that's why I really like that one. Yeah, Audrey won. Her voice did annoy me. I'm not I'm not a fan of that voice. Who was the last one? Oh, like Singing in the Rain. Uh, she has yeah. that very squeaky voice, and but she can sing. Unlike Singing in the Rain, she can sing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Audrey, too, his voice is uh, is great. Uh, Stubbs, his, you know, I wish there was more of Audrey, too, in there. Yeah, that was that was really good voice acting. Also, the, the animatronic, that. Man, you know, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it holds up. It looks great. Made by Conway. And then, you know, they had, uh, he was the main one to design Audrey 2. And they did have some additional puppeteers to assist with the, 
with just the movement because there's a lot of movement with this puppet uh and that's where you they did a collaboration as well with the with the henson uh with their company uh but the main one to to you know to be really thanked for this project was conway so that's lyle conway who uh he also worked at frank oz on the muppets and the dark crystal um and a lot of the animatronic and puppeteering crew would also work on the labyrinth as well with oz and jim henson yeah all great looking stuff I thought the movements were great, and I actually did see a clip that just showed the number of puppeteers that worked into that movement, especially because they had different uh, size puppets. They had different puppets that they used at different sizes, and one of the larger ones, there was like a whole team of a whole bunch of people behind the scenes, each one moving different parts of the puppet. So I think that they worked really hard to to get that movement perfect, and I think it really pulls off. I think it movement looks flawless. Yeah, I I agree. Like I said, it still looks it still looks great today. The human actors, like I said, I wasn't a big fan of our lead actor whose name I'm already forgetting. Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis, who I mostly knew from one of my favorites as a kid was the Honey I Shrunk the Kids, Honey I Shrunk Ourselves movies as a kid. Yes. Yeah, um, I remember but- those movies and also Ghostbusters, who he basically plays the same characters as Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was in Ghostbusters, too. Um, yeah, I, d- I wasn't really feeling his character. I wasn't really rooting for him as the underdog, which I think the film wanted you to do. Uh, and he does some things that are kind of weird. He talks uh, a lot like Morty from Rick and Morty. I noticed a lot of his like mannerisms when he speaks was very similar. And that threw me off. And then like there's things he does. Like at one point he cuts his finger and he's just like sucking on his finger like a baby. And I'm like, this is a weird man. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. I, I never saw the movie trying to say or, or trying to give him an underdog story. If anything, I feel like the movie ends or well, depending on the ending, you know, Saying that he made a lot of wrong decisions. Yeah, but it was very much so like these are two characters, him and Audrey One. They're two characters that are living in Skid Row, this kind of underdeveloped uh, neighborhood in the city. And they're both longing to get out of it, it it's, it's which is a, also a thing that we see in musicals, too. Um, first one that comes to my mind is In the Heights. Um but they're both, he was an orphan and he was taken in for a job and he does crummy jobs. He scrubs toilets, he cleans the floors. And so he's very much presented as the underdog to me. And he takes this plant and be successful plant in that he sees that as his way to to get success, to get money and maybe one day find his way out of this place. Yeah, I didn't see it too much like that. I saw, like I said, I don't think there was really much to the characters. Even uh, Audrey One, though, says, like, you need to, to get better standards. You need to think higher for yourself. Yeah, but I feel like the more, I don't know, I, I feel like the, the theme was more upfront than the the characters themselves and their development, which is why it didn't, it didn't bother me because they got at least one part. They got one part right and out there. I'm not talking about development. I'm talking about the film explicitly stating who this character is and what his story is. And it doesn't bother me because there was more up front that I could, you know, appreciate and go along with the movie. And it didn't bother me too much that there just wasn't really anything to this character other than the archetype that he played. 
Yeah, like I said, like all what I'm talking about is an archetype. I agree with that. Yeah. So I agree with you. I just, for me, I think it was more of a detriment just because I thought this character was very annoying. Yeah, I, I, it didn't bother me. Uh, someone who I really liked, the, the one that was the standout for me was Steve Martin. I mean, I already enjoy Steve Martin's comedy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I go in this, you know, already with a favorable opinion. Uh, how did he work for you? Well, I already said before, um, yeah, you could tell that he was uh, an experienced comedian coming into this role. I don't know how experienced uh, Moranis, Moranis? Moranis. Moranis was at the time, but I felt like at times Steve Martin was acting circles around him. Well, yeah, because I don't think his character was meant to do anything at that point. I mean, Steve Martin is controlling all of it. One, he is the experienced comedian. Two, that's his character is to overpower this meek little dude. I don't think I don't think Rick Mayers was there for a com- comedy at all. Mm, I disagree. Uh, Why was he sucking his finger like a baby? <laughs> because he's just he's just playing his archetype <laughs> on his finger. I'm like that's freaking weird. <laughs> yeah, he's just playing up his archetype. That's all. Like I didn't expect like true like comedy. I didn't expect. I mean, he has one line that I thought was funny. I think it's also like the physicality too. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just di- I didn't expect. My expectations were, I guess, I didn't have the same expectations for this character that you did. So things, it seemed like things worked better for me. I just looked past it. I was like, all right, whatever. For me, I'm like, this is your lead character. So I just would have wanted to care a little bit more about his fate. I think that there is a shift in this story where it does become like more of a dark horror musical. You mentioned Supper Time really adds to that. But I think I did like it better after that shift. Uh, a little bit more like I said the beginning just had pacing issues to me uh, but I definitely think I would have liked it better if it had kept up that vibe for it not that there wasn't comedy moments that I enjoyed Uh, there was one moment where she's talking about how she wants to have a big enormous 12 inch tv screen and I thought that was funny Um, but I think that sometimes like I said the love story and the humor like, I could have liked to see played down a little bit and a little bit more of that, that dark humor play a little bit more. Yeah, I think the pace of work, because it kind of, the, the darkness, like the dark comedy grows as as Audrey 2 grows. And I think that's why later in the film, you start to get more of that. So I think, I, you know, if, if that's what they were shooting for, they couldn't have been shooting for that. But I think it's a good parallel to the, you know, no pun intended, the the growth of the of the film, of the plot. Mm-hmm. This is quite the influential film as well. I uh, found quite a bit of things in my research as well as significance. Caitlin, what did you find in Influence? So at one point, there was going to be a remake from Warner Brothers with uh, Taron Egerton and Scarlett Johansson in Talks to Star, but it was officially canceled in 2022. In 1991, there was also an animated kids show on Fox Kids called Little Shop. It was about a kid named Seymour who had a pet uh, plant, Cutnall Jr., and it didn't eat people, but it still got into some hijinks. They love making Saturday cartoons out of everything. They do. Although I did enjoy a lot of them. Like, I think I liked the Ghostbusters one. I liked the Mummy one a lot. They're ones I enjoyed. As a kid, obviously. Maybe I enjoyed them. Maybe I didn't. I'm not going back to see if I did. (laughs) No, probably not. 
You did mention Alan Menken and the song Somewhere That's Green and why I probably like it. And we talked about Alan Menken being a Disney composer. And apparently the song Somewhere That's Green served as a blueprint for Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid. They kind of have some similar motifs in there between the two songs. And I love Part of Your World. That's my favorite Disney song. Although I definitely like Part of Your World miles more than Somewhere That's Green. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, they improved. Now, this, of course, is referenced in a lot of cartoons, such as Family Guy, you mentioned, South Park, The Simpsons. There's an episode of The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy called Little Rock of Horrors, where Billy makes friends with a singing plant alien. So very similar to the movie, of course. And something else that I had seen that I think introduced me a little bit more to the story of Little Shop of Horrors was the rom-com I Want You Back, released in 2022. And I can't tell if this was really influenced by the movie or the musical, but in the movie, Jenny Slate's character is volunteering for a middle school production of Little Shop of Horrors to try and seduce the school's theater director but then she later ends up subbing in for the audrey character and she did a pretty really good um rendition of suddenly seymour herself you can find the clip of that online if you don't want to watch the movie the movie itself was all right yeah i think i heard of it but not enough to go out and watch it is that all you have for influence yep did you mention the comic book that dc had published for this no i didn't uh, actually, for a lot of these influence and significance, uh, do know that some of these, there is a possibility that it came from the stage play or the the original movie, which was uh, made in 1960, which is funny because actually the stage play occurred in between these two movies. The stage play is an adaption of the movie in 1960 of the same name. And they did make a comic. Uh, DC had published a comic, Little Shop of Horrors, and they do use a lot of the same uh same likeness to the characters from this movie. It seems like a lot of things came mostly from this movie, especially to, to the likeness. Uh, they even made a board game talking about Saturday cartoons uh, that they were making cartoons of everything. They're also making board games of everything. So this was a board game called Feed Me. Uh, you mentioned appropriate a lot of, title. Yeah, very appropriate. You mentioned uh, a lot of cartoons that had parody, parody this or spoof this. Uh, there's also a plant, a talking plant in the show Harley Quinn named Frank the Plant. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Now, I couldn't find anything to say like, hey, there is a direct connection. But when you look at it, it's the same likeness. It has a very similar voice. And also, the plant's name is Frank. And the director's name of this movie is Frank Oz. So very, I'm um, very sure that there's a sim- uh, similarity there. Especially with a lot of dark humor in Harley Quinn as well. So this not only had an influence on the Little Mermaid song, Part of Your World, but this movie actually had a pretty big part when it comes to just Disney's renaissance period, starting with the Little Mermaid and then on with a lot of animated films. The reason being is after the success of this play and this movie, Howard Ashman was approached by, by Disney. Uh, through recommendation of Alan, who I'm not going to say the last name, Alan M., so I don't want to get made fun of again. He was the producer of Little Shop of Horrors and of the movie, and Disney came to him, and he recommended Ashman as well. And then they went on from there, and they brought a lot of what they learned from Little Shop of Horrors, the movie, and the stage to 
uh, do things within Disney, such as Part of Your World with Little Mermaid. You can see further influence with Hercules. Uh, while a Greek chorus is not is not anything new, uh, the Greek cor- chorus in this they do share a likeness to to the three girls in this movie. Uh, also, the stage play too. Yeah, although he didn't write for Hercules, he wrote for Aladdin, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, primarily. Yes, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he Ashman. He was a writer, and Alan Menken was a composer. Yes, and uh, producers and. I'm not sure if they're head of music department, but supervisors of the music department as well. So they are a producer of The Little Mermaid and that's it. Or Howard Ashman was. Okay. Yeah. But I'm saying like, um, so since so after those three films, you later got on Hercules, you later got Hercules. You still saw that influence in there. Yeah. Like you still saw the, you still saw the influence from what they established even after his passing because Ashman did pass away pretty early. I wasn't sure if that was inspired by Little Shop of Horrors or if they're both just inspired by the same thing. They have a horses. No, there's a there's a quote I found. Okay. Uh, so there's actually a really good video about this whole how this connects to Disney and the Renaissance. It's from this woman uh, woman's YouTube channel called Dream Sound, which I'll have to post post the link onto our social media. I know I owe you guys a lot of things, so start knocking those out. But I'll make sure to post that one up, too. Uh, also, you have characters. They did work on Beauty and the Beast. Now, I don't know if this is so much of influence as a connection, but something at least interesting to bring up. And that is uh, the dentist with leather, Steve Martin and leather, and then the character Gaston have a connection. Uh, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> G- Gaston. Gaston. Whatever his name is. The, you know, Gaston. The villain in- Gaston. <laughs> Gaston. Gaston, the villain in Beauty and the Beast, everybody thinks like, okay, that guy looks a little, you know, he's he's most likely somewhere leaning on the gay side of the spectrum. And it was actually an inside joke. Um, Gaston, whatever his name is, uh, he was he was created with that in mind. Uh, There was an interview and both the dentist and Gaston share similarities in that and that they were both trades. Which trade is a uh, what's it called? It's it's slang in the gay community for someone who appears very masculine, but so masculine to hide their gayness, and that's what Ashman Ashman was openly gay uh, during this time, and you know he was out there with his boyfriend, and they admitted, or Mank later came in and said, like, yeah, both the dentist and Gaston, like they did that on purpose. They made them trades. So it was, they said it was like pretty much an inside gay joke. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's questionable. I mean, it's in the interview. It's, there's an interview and he confirms it. No, I mean, it's questionable with Disney's, um, when you couple that with also, I mean, it's good that he was openly gay. I mean, that he was creating this character. So I'm not saying that this particular, um, representation was bad, but Disney obviously has a history of, using queer characteristics in their villains and villainizing queerness. And it's possible that it started here. It's possible that they, it's possible that these guys did this on purpose. And then people later like saw their villains and were influenced by them, not realizing that their villains were actually, or actually queer. Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh man, this guy's cool. I'm going to base all my villains off of him too. Oh wait, he's gay. Well, too late now. 
I didn't know that there was a common interpretation of Gaston because he's obviously a very much a, a womanizer in the film. So I, I never saw it that way. And especially since like, I guess the new kind of like at Disney World, I know that a lot of heterosexual women uh, are very into Gaston <laughs> and the, the character who plays Gaston at Disney Parks. So I just never knew that that was that was a thing. So that's interesting. Everyone loves Gaston. <laughs> I mean, he put it out there. Everybody loves him. Uh, you know, it couldn't have just, he may have not just been gay. He may have just been pansexual, didn't care. Uh, now when I think about it, I'm like, you know what? He was trying a little too hard to prove to everybody that he wanted Belle. <laughs> like he yeah. wanted to storm a castle. He sung songs all the time about it. He wanted to fight a beast. He ripped open his shirt to show like how hairy and manly he was. I was like, all right, man, <laughs> we get it. You're very straight. So I, I mm -hmm. now I see it a little bit more. Yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. But I thought that was one of the coolest influences I found with just like how you know, like this was a part of how we got one of the greatest renaissance in in film, and something that a lot of people hold dear to them through their childhood. A lot of our our demographic, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You'll definitely will have to post that article on our social media. Oh, it's not just an article; it's a full on video. A really well-made video essay. It's like thirty-six oh, okay. minutes. It provides uh, it provides quotes in the video, and it provides the sources as well. Hmm. Also, community theater. They like to do a stage play of this, whether they were inspired by the st actual stage play or the movie. But this does have a rather small cast, so it is easy for community theaters to put on this play. Uh, this is also quite the significant movie, Caitlin. What did you find in significance? So I, I said I would talk a little bit more about the logistics of the puppeting for Audrey 2. Um, one thing that the puppeting team really wanted to accomplish is to really make it look realistic when the puppet is talking. And one way that they found that they were able to accomplish this is actually by slowing down the frame rate when they filmed in scenes where the plant was talking. And so a lot of the scenes you'll see, a lot of the shots you'll see, there aren't really shots with him talking and a human character with him. But there are occasional shots like that. And in those shots, the human characters actually had to lip sync their lines in slow motion. And so then they would add the voices in later when the film was sped back up to 24 frames per second in post. And that's what they found just created the most realistic talking moments for the plant. Now, I did want to talk briefly about the two endings without going into any spoilers, but there are two endings for this film. There's the original ending that Frank Oz wanted, and that unfortunately did really poorly with test screening, so they swapped out the ending, and that's how we got the theatrical ending. And it's interesting because in 1998, there was a special edition DVD that was originally released and it accidentally had 23 minutes of unfinished black and white footage from the original ending uh, that actually caused it to be the first film recalled from shelves. It was recalled and replaced with another version of the DVD that didn't contain that material. But then in 2012, the director's cut was finally released, which had that completed colorized ending. And it was also screened at the New York Film Festival, where it received a much better reception than it was in those original test screenings. This is the only film out there with Steve Martin and Bill Murray. Uh, they're both two huge comedians. I mean, they're still making things today, but they, uh, you know, they Hollywood has never really put those two in a movie together aside from this. What's the last thing Steve Martin was in? Uh, only Murders in the Building. Oh, uh, okay. I forgot about that. 
I mean, he does another film with Frank Oz that I just watched, Bowfinger, uh, with Eddie Murphy as well, which is funny because Eddie Murphy was almost going to be the voice of Audrey too, which would have been interesting. Hmm. I don't know if that would have been like just the donkey. Uh, Ellen Greer, uh, my bad, Ellen Green, uh, she starred in this and the stage play. Uh, that's another one. We just talked about it last week with Lisa Kudrow and Romy and Michelle. She participated mm-hmm. in the stage play and then she got casted for the movie. Uh, this film has a following within the queer community as well uh, to include mostly uh, those who are trans. Uh, they find, especially the song Over the Green, they find connections in that song along with uh, their own uh, experiences as well as just wanting a, a simple life. Oh, somewhere that's green? Yeah. What did I say? Over the green? Yeah. <laughs> Over the rainbow, into the green. Yeah. This was also, at the time, this was WB's most expensive movie, which is crazy because that same year, Aliens came out. And Caitlin, I know you haven't seen Aliens, but just imagine the movie Alien and then make it plural. And somehow this movie was more expensive than that movie. Yeah, I'm surprised at that. I'm somewhat surprised because the director was also James Cameron and... I don't know. He works box office budget magic. Like he, I think James Cameron has been like feeding feeding people to a giant plant that just prints money for him or something, or steals mm-hmm. equipment. Most you likely, say steals maybe equipment. it's money under a table. I don't know. <laughs> now I like the idea that he feeds a giant plant people, and that giant plant then goes and commits larceny to get him equipment off the books to make his movies. Yeah. Who would you recommend this film for? Um, a general audience who likes musicals. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot for cinephiles other than, like I said, the puppetry and animatronics. I think you can probably learn some stuff from that if that's something that you're interested in. Um, but I think a general audience would like this. But once again, if you like musicals, I think if you don't like musicals, this isn't going to be the one that's going to change your mind. I disagree. I think if you don't like musicals, this is one that you can put on for those people that aren't aren't sure. Like they haven't made up their mind of musicals because this one provides something that usually don't associate with musicals the the horror and i think that also works for cinephiles this is a horror musical outside of rocky horror picture show and i think this is like um i don't know rocky horror picture show is a bad movie like it's a great movie but it's also it's not a good movie like there's like like there's a lot of unintentional funny things or like i don't know it's it's very odd see i feel like i would recommend sweeney todd i remember not liking sweeney todd so i probably wouldn't Really? Also, Sweeney Todd is very bloody. Yeah, that's true. If I remember true. correctly. It is very bloody. But I think, obviously, it would be for a more mature audience. But I would recommend this to, to both. I think I think you can find people in both groups to appreciate this. All right, well, now we're going to go ahead and feed this podcast as spoilers in the classified section. So if you have not seen this movie and you don't want to be spoiled, do not continue ahead. Stop here. Go watch the movie and then come on back. Uh, if you have seen this movie or you're just one of those people that don't care about spoilers, then continue on through. Caitlin, where do you want to start off with spoilers? Uh, well, do you want to talk about the two different endings or do you want to, is there something before that you want to talk about? Honestly, the two different endings is the only spoiler thing I have to discuss. Okay, same. Yeah, uh, which, okay, which ending did you prefer? Let's go with that. Overall, I prefer the original director's cut ending. Um, I wouldn't say that everything in it worked for me 
So in the original director's cut, it's kind of a more dreadful one. The original end of a theatrical ending is a happy ending where he saves Audrey in time and he destroys Audrey too and they go get married and live happily ever after. And it was a little too cheesy for me. I just wasn't really a fan of that. But the original director's cut ending, he doesn't save Audrey in time and he fulfills her last wish to feed her to the plant, which I didn't like that aspect of it because I don't understand why. I understand why she wanted to be fed to the plant, but I don't understand why he went through with it. But what I did like about the ending in the original ending, I think, was that it was a little bit bleaker, that um, we didn't get that cheesy happy ending and uh, Seymour, he does get eaten by the plant as well. But then we get this really, really good epilogue that I just thought was hilarious how they did it with the Greek chorus. Um, and there's some funny lines and moments there and you get to see the plants taking over the world. And so I liked that aspect of it. It does go on a little bit long, though. I will say that the original director's cut ending, it could have been cut down a little bit. It goes on pretty long in the epilogue. Yeah, with this being the most expensive movie WB had at that date, I see it in this ending. Like a third mm-hmm. of this budget was in this ending and nobody saw it for so long. Yeah. I I don't know. I like There's some bits I like of the original, the directoral uh, cut, and there's some that I like of the theatrical. I, I mean, I'm not always a fan. I'm, I'm not a big fan of bleakness, but I think it does kind of work in here. The only My only issue or... My issue before was that, wow, one man caused all this destruction to everybody. But then during the song lyrics and knowing how the plant works, like they, they the song lyrics were saying that other jerks had to do the same exact thing. So it's just showing mm-hmm. that, you know, there are many humans who possess that same greed. So I, you know, I, I like that. And I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was funny. I think it is, it is cool to see. I think they did a good job on the destruction of it. Though I also wonder like, can you just napalm this? Like, I feel like this wouldn't be world ending. You could probably <laughs> napalm. True. And then, but yeah, the original ending, while it is a happy ending, it is a bit cheesy. Uh, and it probably doesn't work for me as well. Cause like I said, like I, I don't care for the, the characters in that sense so much. And when you're looking at this as a story, like a fairy tale of don't make deals with the devil, the original ending, it fits better with it. So I, don't know, I, I guess think- I probably prefer the original Okay. I think that my, like, preferred ending would be Seymour and Audrey 1 surviving to, like, an uncertain future where the plants take over. That would be, like, my preferred ending, I think. Like, kind of a mix of both without the cheesy wedding. Okay, so, like, that little uh, horror, ambiguous ending that we usually, like, we kind of see. Yeah, I think that's what I would have liked. I don't know. Maybe, like, him losing an arm would have sufficed for me. (laughs) Like just that. I, I, I don't know. I think I would be fine if they walked off happily ever after. But I need some kind, some kind of consequences. And again, like if uh, if we did have more backstory, like more, more development and more things with his character, maybe I'll feel like he learned a lesson. But with with someone like this, this shallow or like a, a fairy tale protagonist, you know, him dying. All right, you know, we just like Little Red Riding Hood. She gets eaten by the the wolf at the end. All right, cool. Story, we got it. Themes, set. Is there anything else you want to talk about on spoilers? No, that was really the most of what I had. Does this hold up? 
Um, there's some racial depictions in here that don't really hold up, but overall, I think that the film holds up. I think the puppetry, like I said, it looks amazing. It still looks really good, and the story's pretty basic, so I don't see why it wouldn't hold up. Yeah, the good old exotic salesman, exotic in in quotations. Mm -hmm. Gotta love that trope. Uh, Other than that, yeah, this holds up. This, This does hold up. That Saturday morning cartoon, that one feels dated. (laughs) Uh, I watched the theme song for that, at least, because, you know, they usually have some catchy theme songs, but something about a cartoon plant voiced by what I presume to be a black man saying, my boy, and at the end of it being like, word, and then he starts rapping in the theme song. Always? (laughs) Like, if he had larger stems, he would have done the B-boy pose. Mm. What do you rate this film? I'm going to give this a C minus. Um, I really didn't enjoy this film. Like I said, I might like it better as a stage adaptation, but I did really enjoy the puppetry and I enjoyed Steve Martin. So most of my positive comes from those two things. Yeah, I have to give this film uh, a one solid grade above you. I'm going to give this a B minus. I, I think that everything for this film works. I just don't think it reaches that level of like of greatness or where I can see parts where it can be greater but i think it's a nice uh i think it's a nice light solid film and and it's i think anybody will find enjoyment out of it somewhere if not the whole thing one thing i did forget to mention when i was talking about opinion is that with the title little shop of horrors i thought there was going to be more horrors rather than just the one plan uh well you know the other horror is human nature yeah. And domestic violence. <laughs> yep. And dentistry. Ooh, and so, dentistry, Yeah, there, yes. there's quite a bit of few horrors in there. And capitalism. Mm, that's true. Another metaphor for consumerism. <laughs> there's quite a bit of horrors. Though every time I sing the song in my head or out loud, I say Little Shop of Horror, not horrors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so C-minus. Not bad. Not bad. Not, not the worst of the 80s films, but not the best. Our next episode, going to be stepping, we're going to step a decade back. We're going to go into the 1970s with Solaris. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know if it's Solaris or, I always pronounce it Solaris. I pronounce it Solaris. (laughs) Solaris. One of those. In this uh, 1970s (laughs) sci-fi film that both Caitlin and I have been wanting to watch. So Mm -hmm. we're going to go ahead and, and, no, knock it out. So it should be... A good episode, as all episodes are. Now, if you guys want to go ahead and contact us, you know, maybe we don't have a Audrey 2, 3, 4, or even 5 on us, but maybe you still want to have us, you know, maybe you still want to have a conversation with us, bring us on to some radio show that you have, uh, some TV TV home marketing show. This guy got a lot of fame for a plant, and they didn't even know that it could talk yet. Like, the world would have <laughs> lost its mind if it could have talked. True. And sing. And sing. Uh, but if you still want to go ahead and get in contact with us, Caitlin, where can they do that? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Ops Lover Screen. At Facebook, we're at Operation Silver Screen. But Twitter and Instagram, that's Ops Silver Screen. If you also want to see what else we're watching throughout the week, maybe see some reviews of films we don't get a chance to talk about on here, you can find us on our personal letterboxes as well. I'm at Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Coffee Spoon C-A-I-T. And Brian's at Swank Seal. That's capital S, capital S. Till next time, we'll be in the little HQ of horrors. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. See ya.